0: Hello, readers. Chuck Klosterman is a journalist and best-selling author of eight nonfiction and two fiction books. His eleventh is out now. It's called Raised in Captivity: Fictional Nonfiction. Chuck, thank you for the time. How's it going today, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I, I did not expect to uh, be on this show. Well, Chuck, uh, I got to ask, what is fictional nonfiction?
1: Well, you know, uh, fictional nonfiction is the same as if you reverse those words into nonfictional fiction. They are both fiction. <laughs> fictional nonfiction would be fictional versions of nonfictional events. Non-fictional fiction would still be fiction. Basically, it was just a way not to put stories at the bottom of the book. I thought, like, well, I'll come up with this almost consciously confusing term. So it doesn't really mean much of anything, although I will say this. Um, this is a, a bunch of short stories, 34 really short stories, um, that are written the way nonfiction is written. Like, this is not a criticism of people who write novels or any contemporary fiction writers, but personally, I prefer reading nonfiction. I like sort of the structure and style of nonfiction. So I decided that even though these are made up scenarios, I'm going to write these the same way I would write about real events. So, if you're the kind of person who like traditionally loves the way short stories are, you might not like this one, but, uh, uh, it's a different, it's a different way to write short stories. You know,
0: it is. And you have this uh, mysterious style about you where you omit certain details of stories, a usually a large detail, but the story itself presses on and they're highly entertaining in the process do you usually know what that major detail is that you're leaving out for the reader when you're writing the story? Well, that's a good question. You know, sometimes yes and sometimes not really. Sometimes yes in the sense that I feel
1: the rest of the story sort of leads uh, the reader to that uh, conclusion, that if they uh, contextualize the rest of what they consume, um, the answer to that question will suddenly become clear. But there are other times where it is purposefully interpretive, where I am hoping the person reading the story will basically use their own experience and their own sense of reality to, uh, to create the non-existent fact. You know, like if, if I talk about a character and there seems to be a big part of his or her life missing, um, but there are all these secondary details Um, I like the idea of someone almost writing the story in their own mind. Uh, You know, it's one thing that I try to do as a nonfiction writer and it's harder in fiction, but maybe this time it worked is to give the reader the sense that they are generating the story with their brain, that I am basically only one sentence ahead of them. Um, That's uh, kind of an illusion in a way, because you know that's not happening by accident but uh that's what i do you
0: know now with blizzard of summer it's about an unknown band who gains fame when one of their love songs is misconstrued as a rallying cry for white power groups which is uh, such a, an absurdly hilarious idea but at one point the manager of this band says we're dealing with a fundamental question about art does the motive or the artist matter or is the received message the only thing that counts Chuck, for you as a guy who is uh, an established journalist like you are, an established writer, what is your answer to that fundamental question?
1: Well, you know, it's been something I've been thinking about my whole life, to be honest, because um, it is, uh, it's is—it's almost an inescapable problem. You know, uh, you're, any creative person has an intent with for what why they make whatever they make. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a writer, or a musician, a filmmaker, um, I mean, even in the capacity of being someone who operates as a sports talk radio host. You know, it's like that, that you have an intent for why you're saying the things that you say or that you're expressing the ideas that you express. However, the way those things operate in the culture are interpretive. And you know, it's, it's, I would like to think that the intent is the most important thing, although our culture has moved in a direction where the received message does seem to matter more. One of the things I was thinking about when I wrote that story, which is, of course, you know, mostly humorous, but, you know, of course, has meanings in it, messages in it, was a case involving Ozzy Osbourne from some years back, where Ozzy Osbourne released the song Suicide Solution which was a song about the death of the lead singer of ACDC who drank himself to death, Von Scott. Ozzy Osbourne released a song about it. Some high school kids committed suicide, and the last thing that they listened to was the song Suicide Solution. So then, of course, Ozzy was asked about it, you know. And his, you know, argument was, well, how can you hold me responsible for people misinterpreting what I'm doing? It's like, you know, you can't – I can't control – uh, the you know the, the possibility of people getting the wrong idea from something, and you know particularly if they're taking the song so seriously, they would be willing to kill themselves over it. It seems that they should also be willing to read the lyrics or learn more about it. You know, now and that does seem like a very cogent sort of response. That said the song is called Suicide Solution, and a lot of people aren't smart enough to put in the work required to understand what something really means. So do I have a clear answer to that? I don't. I have a desire for it to be the intent, but I don't know if it's practical to, to think that.
0: We're in a weird place in 2019. And I know that case was uh, from a couple years ago, but we're at a spot now where The vocally hypersensitive have uh, gained this major voice and this major control on how things go and how people have to operate and how people have to apologize for sometimes what aren't even necessarily past transgressions, for things that are just basically misinterpreted or, or interpreted in a different way. Based on that, I love what you did with the perfect kind of friend was the 2015 Binghamton University study that argued unpunctuated text indicate sincerity? Was that for real? And I ask that because yeah. a lack of punctuation bothers me to no end as lazy and insincere.
1: Yeah, that that's, that was a real study. There was a study that suggested that people who use no punctuation at the end of texts um, are more sincere. Why that would be makes most, no sense to me. I always use punctuation. Some people, though. Um, and I have, I have found this with friends of mine that if you respond to a text of theirs and you don't like, if you don't use an exclamation point, they think that somehow you're annoyed by the question. And if you use a period, you seem to be openly being adversarial with your response. Now, why do people think that? I don't know. Uh, but that thinking exists, right? Uh, you know, texting is something that is relatively new. I mean, it was it was pretty uncommon to have a text relationship with someone uh, in the year two thousand or two thousand and one. So it's less than twenty years. So in less than twenty years, we've created this new medium for communication, which for a lot of relationships is the primary medium. There are people in my life who. You know, I consider pretty close friends, and 98% of our interaction is through text. So there's this whole kind of weird grammar now that exists. That, And I think that the questions about why that happened are worth writing about. So maybe that's kind of what some of these stories are about.
0: No question. And tone is also something that's very difficult to grasp, especially you know over twitter and social media at times but especially with interpersonal text messages it is difficult to understand where a person is coming from at times whether they could be joking they could be telling you a dry piece of humor and you don't know that necessarily if you don't know the person all that well i guess my question based on that chuck is is somebody who ha- has a very dry sense of humor self, do you ever use emojis when it comes to text messages
1: um so-
0: Almost never,
1: <laughs> I guess there is uh, the occasional exception where someone will communicate to me with an emoji and because I find that to be so moronic, I will send back an emoji that makes no sense. <laughs> like, I will, like, like I will send back like the emoji of like the warthog or whatever. I, I you know, but I, as, as an actual way to
0: communicate,
1: Never i I just you know i i, I don't I just don't
0: <laughs> I would expect nothing less, Chuck, which of these stories did you give the most consideration to what happens beyond what you wrote uh like which of these stories because they're all just uh, part of a larger tale, and you tell stories and a lot of times uh in these stories like uh rhinoceros for instance, uh there is more of a story to be told beyond what you wrote. Maybe the question is: Do you give much consideration beyond that final paragraph that you've written in most of these tales?
1: Well, you know, okay, that is uh that is a, a kind of an interesting thing to ask because uh, this is another kind of fundamental question about art, I guess. Like, okay, did you did you watch the TV show Friday Night Lights? I did. For example, okay, do you imagine? the lives of those characters going on beyond the show. Do you imagine now that Saracen is working in somewhere, Houston or whatever, as a 30-year-old guy? Do you imagine that when Coach Taylor moves to Philadelphia, do you think about his life there? Or do you think that the story only exists through what we've actually seen? Because I am in the second category. Hmm. My thinking is when I'm dealing with fiction, the idea of, these things existing outside of that world uh, that, uh, uh, you know, it's totally fine to daydream about it. Like it's totally okay to daydream about like, you know, what is, um, you know, what, what, you know, do, do uh, his, is Jerry Seinfeld back in his New York apartment, his Kramer, his neighbor. That's totally fine. That's so it's fun to kind of have that kind of hypothetical thought. But when I work in these stories, they are closed systems. The only information that exists are the, is the information i put in the story. Everything else is, not, is, is dependent on the degree to which the consumer wants to interpret that. So um, you're right. The story that I, the story you referenced, rhinoceros or whatever, there's a whole backstory that would need to exist and then a whole story moving forward, um, but uh that's not my concern i if i i am concerned with what I take yeah you
0: know? <laughs> that's fair. Well, I'll give you one example that uh, that I encountered in reading these stories uh It was the enemy within. Which is uh, this woman being grilled by government officials, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, about her husband.
1: Well, it doesn't say they're government officials.
0: Okay, I'm sorry, just just yeah, okay. being, yeah. being grilled by people. That's right, she was taken, taken to a place where they promised that she would not be harmed or anything else, never identified who they were, uh, but uh, they basically laid out for her. I don't want to ruin this story for people, but I'm going to go ahead and tell you because I'm talking to the author himself. They laid out for her why her husband is uh, leading this fake life, so to speak. Like he's representing himself one way, but leading a totally different life. And that they essentially say at the end, uh, guess what? You may have to come to terms with the fact that Henry is fake woke. And so... The story ends before you find out for sure. You have a pretty good idea that he probably is leading a different life versus what he tells her. But the question comes about of what happens to Henry if he is, in fact, fake woke, considering that these people have gone to this degree where they have kidnapped his significant other to make sure that she understands as much. So is the punishment for fake woke? Is he going to be publicly shamed by somebody? Does it just mean that she leaves him? These are the questions that uh, rattle around in my head when I read stories like this, Chuck. Oh, okay, so here's what the thinking of that story is. We all now are
1: familiar with the idea of cancel culture on the Internet, particularly on Twitter, okay, where the idea of where someone has done something that is uh, so egregious that, that the community has basically decided we're going to cancel this person. And then there's like a second level where um, fans of that individual are also – sort of in jeopardy it's like if if somebody was still you know like an extreme example if there was somebody on twitter who was still saying like i still love bill cosby records or whatever (laughs) like you know they would there would be a lot of outcry (laughs) against that individual they would be like this person you so uh you know for people and it's very easy to understand why so my thinking was what if we took that online culture and put it in the physical world What if instead of it was people talking about this on social media, these were people doing these things in life? So what that is, that story is about something that happens on the Internet,
0: uh, but cast as if it was happening in real reality. Yeah. Ah, all right. Well, I'm going to have to read back through that one now. Regarding Rhinoceros, which I referenced a couple questions ago, was that story born out of your disdain for Wikipedia? No. You know what?
1: I like Wikipedia. Okay. I, I mean, I, I think that uh, as a, if someone had told me that there's going to be a user-generated encyclopedia, I would be like, that's a terrible idea. But in practice, yeah, there are mistakes on Wikipedia, but there are mistakes in the Encyclopedia Britannica. The difference is Wikipedia is massive. Like, I would guess... It's, I, I don't know this, but you know, there's probably a Wikipedia entry for this radio show. If It's very possible. Or, or that someone will hear this interview and immediately put one up. So the amount of things that are encompassed by Wikipedia um, is incredible to me. And the fact that it's 92% accurate or whatever it is, like, I'll take the 8% wrong. It's just, I think it's a real, uh, kind of a real, kind of amazing function. The thing that I find interesting, though, is the kind of growing belief, especially by young people, uh, I mean, maybe exclusively to young people, that the past is not something you need to know about because it's being all collected on the Internet. I mean, when I was a younger person, what did it mean to be a smart person? It didn't mean that you knew what was going on in the present tense. It meant you knew what had happened in the past. Like, When I was starting as a rock critic, it didn't matter how you felt about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and the Kinks and the Doors. You had to know that to be taken seriously enough to write about Soundgarden and whatever band was happening at the time, you know, Oasis or whatever. You had to know about the past in order to be believed as someone who had a valid opinion about the present. And that has changed. Because I think now the the idea is well, all that information is available if I want it. If I want to totally understand, you know, um, the film culture of 1982, I don't have to see those films. I don't have to know about those films. I can just look it up on my phone, and I'm essentially an expert in 30 seconds. But it's a weird kind of expertise. It's it's doing the exact opposite. Of what we thought the internet would do instead of of making the understanding of society wider and more diverse it's actually boiling it down to these are the six things everyone knows and we accept them regardless of their accuracy so it's not that i don't like wikipedia as an idea i don't like the idea though of someone thinking wikipedia is a way to understand the world
0: yeah, it's fleeting. I'm not even g- going to call it knowledge. It's fleeting information that you cite in the moment. You essentially pluck opinions from others who do truly have an understanding of what the topic is at hand. And it is it is a strange thing that we're in this age where we should all be smarter because of all the information at our disposal, but in a way, we're all becoming dumber.
1: Uh, that is definitely happening.
0: <laughs> yes, <laughs> Yeah. There,
1: there, there, we, have, we have unlimited media now. We have unlimited access to information about politics and finance and sports and, uh, and culture and all of these things. And yet to argue that people have a better understanding of the world now than they did in, say, 1988 or whatever, they have more information. But it's not a clear grasp on what reality is and proof of this is the fact that it's, you know, it seems as though every reality is happening simultaneously. Like it's impossible for people to have a real discussion of, about, say like climate change or whatever, if they have opposing views because they're not even using the same information. It's like there, there is nothing to debate because they have different, um, uh, a different list of what is real, you know, it's a, uh, so it, it it's, it has not been a positive thing
0: (laughs) no doubt chuck self-inflicted pain and or death is a common theme throughout raising captivity one of the most unique examples of this is the wolf in trial and error where did you come up with that idea to kill the wolf like that i guess that is just sort of a specific kind of metaphor
1: for an abstract idea which is Does it matter what you believe in? Are you better off just believing in something, even if it's irrational? Are you going to be a happier person if you believe something, even if that thing is crazy? Or are you going to be happier if you deal with the premise that maybe there is no answer to how life works? And I think this is another question that everyone goes through to some extent. You know, it's like, is it... Uh, you know, whether it's religion or whether it's politics or whether it's, you know, their relationship, whatever the case may be. The question about, well, am I better off with something crazy than nothing at all? Hmm.
0: One of the stories towards the end of the book is called Fluke. And in that story, the main character sees a whale struck by lightning out at sea. This whale lightning bit represented a sort of epiphany for that character Morris as he contemplated his future. Are there any significant whale getting struck by lightning moments at a major crossroads in your life?
1: No, but I used to go uh, to a uh, place called Fire Island with a lot of friends, like me and my wife would go, and all, our, all these couple friends would go to this island that's off the, kind of off, I lived in New York, and it's off the coast of, coast of Long Island, it's this really nice kind of vacation getaway, very great beach there, we would have a house, and we would just sort of sit there and party and talk about things. And one of the things that we came up with once was what would be the most amazing thing to see. And somehow the conclusion came to be if a whale jumped out of the ocean and was struck by lightning and you saw it, that would be the craziest thing possible. So then we started researching whether or not this has ever happened. And there's some evidence that occasionally this does happen, that whales come out of the water, you know, they, you know you, or their tail comes out of the water in a fluke pattern and they get hit by lightning. And uh, that was the origin of that. The idea that it would be a life-changing event, well, that has to do with the fact that uh, in life, there are moments that change everything about the way you think and the way you feel, and they're not exactly rational. It has to do with the place you're in when that happens, and uh, that's sort of what that story is about.
0: Last thing, Chuck, before I let you go, uh, I just wanted to ask uh, more of a philosophical question for you. As a guy who is really good at telling stories, what's the key to telling a good story?
1: Three keys, I think, to storytelling, writing in specific. But, you know, there's many things about writing and storytelling that are important. You could list a thousand of them. But as far as I'm concerned, only three really matter. It needs to be interesting It needs to be entertaining, and it needs to be clear. It needs to be interesting in the sense that it changes the way a person thinks about things they've thought about in the past or maybe gives them the opportunity to think about something they've never before considered. That's an interesting moment. It needs to be entertaining in the sense that if the story is five minutes long, it needs to be an enjoyable five minutes. If it's 40 minutes long, it needs to be an enjoyable 40 minutes. In other words, the amount of time the person is going to invest is going to be something that wants them to keep going. It needs to have like a kind of a propulsive, uh, perpetuative impact. And it needs to be clear. The person has to have a sense of what's going on or have enough information that they can do it themselves. So to me, if somebody said, what's a good story? I'd be like, well, was it interesting? Was it entertaining? Was it clear? If it's two of those three things, it's pretty good. If it's all three, it's great.
0: Well, you did a great job with all three throughout this book. Raising Captivity is what it's called. Chuck Klosterman has been my guest. Uh, Chuck, thank you so much for the time. Really enjoyed these stories, especially the last paragraph of Not That Kind of Person, one of the most diabolically funny couple of sentences that I think I've ever read. So uh, great job on that and also throughout Raising Captivity. Thanks a lot, man.